from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. Welcome back to another special edition of The Cut Podcast. Um, I'm very uh, happy to be sitting here right now with a person who, uh, although I have not until very recently met, uh, I consider an important teacher of mine, um, Professor uh, Rick Schwader at the University of Chicago. Um, So would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, I'm Rick Schwader. I'm a cultural anthropologist and cultural psychologist at the University of Chicago in a interdisciplinary department called the Department of Comparative Human Development. It's actually the longest surviving and oldest genuinely interdisciplinary social science PhD program in the United States. Um, I do work in on comparative ethics. I'm very interested in family life practice and the moral foundations of family life practice. I've worked for many years in a Hindu temple town on the east coast of India. Uh, And in recent years, I have been studying migration and in particular cultural collisions that emerge as people migrate from southern societies and move into Western Europe, North America, bringing with them beliefs and practices that mainstream populations in those places who in some cases actually thought of themselves as pluralists and have bumper stickers on their cars saying celebrate diversity all of a sudden don't like in fact loathe and hate and um, all of a sudden um, their sense of pluralism uh, gets challenged as practices that anthropologists have been studying for generations on a worldwide scale move into their neighborhoods so I've been very interested in these kinds of cultural collisions having to do with gender relations, authority in the family, discipline of children, and in particular, and in addition to that, I've also been interested in body modifications, uh, both male and female. It turns out that um, both male and female genital beautification practices are socially endorsed and highly valued in many ethnic groups in the world. And as those people migrate, um, all of a sudden, the issue of why in the world are they doing this and um, uh, the importance of anthropology in assisting mainstream populations in Europe and the United States in coming to understand the so-called native point of view and um, stepping into their worlds and understanding little known others becomes important if there's going to be any attitudes such as live and let live in diverse pluralistic societies. So that problematic um, is the one that is central to my research. Um, The big question I have been asking in recent years is, is it possible to be a robust cultural pluralist? I view myself as a robust cultural pluralist um, and a dedicated political liberal at the same time. And um, The answer to that question, I think, is very complex, and I've been searching for a variety of liberalism, uh, I mean liberalism in the broad sense of political liberalism, that's compatible with robust cultural diversity. By robust cultural diversity, I mean one that goes beyond, I love to go to taste their foods and what colorful costumes they wear. I mean robust cultural pluralism when all of a sudden you find that people next door practice polygamy, or um, in Europe right now, for example, in Denmark, um, the, I'm uh, I'm sorry, in Holland, the Dutch Medical Association um, has put out a report decrying male circumcision uh, in Holland and calling on Muslims and Jews to stop the practice. that's not what I would call an attitude of robust cultural pluralism. And so... uh, This brings us to the subject at hand, and I want to give a little background on how I came to you um, and why your work became very interesting to me. Um, I was sent a copy of your essay, um, 
Shouting at the Hebrews, which is a, a fantastic title, by the way. <laughs> uh, I believe it comes from an Italian physician, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. um, talking about uh, shouting at the Hebrews for their practice of uh, male genital cutting, male circumcision. Um, and I read, I read the essay, and I was immediately taken by the depth and sophistication of your presentation of the issue. Most of the time when I uh, encounter people who have different opinions about male circumcision than I do, um, it's usually people who haven't spent any time thinking about it. Um, they sort of uh, hide behind cultural reasons, um, like it's cleaner, it's healthier, it prevents certain kinds of diseases. And so, um, <laughs> Uh, early on in your essay, you completely dismiss all of those reasons and then go on to a very um, complex discussion about what you were just talking about, what it means to be uh, a liberal who's committed to uh, robust multicultural values. Um, so I was wondering if we could start by uh, having you just sort of give some of the highlights from the content of that article, Shouting at the Hebrews. Um, what were you arguing there and what were you trying to accomplish uh, by publishing this paper? Uh, before I describe the central argument and issues in Shouting at the Hebrews, and you're right that that comes from a, a quotation in an essay by Sander Gilman uh, discussing attributions of barbarity to other peoples, and he quotes an Italian physician in the 19th century who was a, appears to be a highly enlightened, educated, scientific type person who shouts at the Hebrews, he says, stop mutilating yourselves, stop setting yourselves apart, stop using the branding iron to do this terrible thing to yourselves. Um, um, before I get into that essay, let me recount my own feelings and experience when my firstborn son arrived in a hospital in Boston. Um, and the uh, obstetrician gynecologist walked in and said, would you like to circumcise your son? Would you like me to do this? And my first thought was, how can I do this to him? I think I probably had all of the kinds of thoughts or some of the kinds of thoughts that you have. It's his body after all. Um, how can I remove this part of his body without his consent and permission? Um, I, how can I do this to him? And the second thought I had was, how can I not do this to him? Um, and much to my surprise, because at the time I would have described myself as a highly secular, atheistic, anti-religious, cosmopolitan, intellectual, individualist, um, much to my surprise, I felt the weight of thousands of years of Jewish history on me. And I, was, I, was a, I felt that this was a bigger issue than I could decide myself. It was not for me to say no. The ancestors weighed in. And I had a sense of an historical ethical community that to which I was attached and um, I felt a sense of responsibility towards it. So there was that feeling of how can I do this? How can I not do this? Um, and the how can I not do this certainly weighed in. And I also felt that probably my son years later would um, have wanted it to be done, feeling ultimately a sense of attachment to that same historical community. Once I had that experience, that launched me on a project of trying to understand the ethical foundations of judgments I was making. And in Shouting at the Hebrews in that essay, I try to describe a conception of the moral order, of the domain of moral truths, which is reminiscent of something that Isaiah Berlin developed, the political philosophy, which is an idea that there are the moral domain, which he viewed as populated by objective goods, is multiple and diverse and plural. It contains many kinds of moral ends or goods or values. And they're often in conflict with each other. They can't all be maximized simultaneously. 
but it's a rich territory. And I think the mistake that many Enlightenment liberals make, who I describe as imperial liberals in this um, essay, is to select a small subset of those values and act as though that's the entire moral domain. And of course, that the value they focus on is autonomy or free choice or self-governance. And if you look at, from my point of view, as I understand the evidence, if you look at neonatal male circumcision, it is indeed a failure to fully respect the autonomy and free choice of the infant. However, all that shows is that it's illiberal in the sense of not valuing or privileging autonomy and free choice, which is hardly the same as making a judgment that it's unethical because the moral domain is full of all sorts of values in addition to autonomy and free choice. And those include duty, interdependency, a sense of commitment and attachment to in-groups, the history of those in-groups, loyalty, senses of sanctity, purity, of sacredness. There are multiple kinds of moral goods that make claims on people. And so while I view neonatal male circumcision as illiberal, I don't view it as unethical. And the kind of pluralism, robust cultural pluralism that I've tried to develop appreciates the scope of the moral domain and is prepared to perceive moral goodness or goodness and value in things that are illiberal. Um, and that includes you know, male circumcision. Um, coming back to the, the story of when you decided to circumcise your son um, and feeling the weight of the tradition, it's, I come from a, a slightly different Jewish background than you do. I come from a traditional, religious, orthodox background. And to my ears, it's peculiar that this ritual of all the rituals that could have spoken to you throughout the generations and, you know, sort of tugged at your mind... Uh, that this is the one that you chose to engage in. I, I imagine you don't observe the Sabbath um, or the major holidays or keep kashrut or anything like this. So why do you think it is that it was this particular ritual as opposed to all the others that was tugging at your mind as, you know, it, it seems a little peculiar to my, you know, granted orthodox uh, tainted ears. Um, I don't think I can answer that with any historical accuracy, but I think, I mean, why history has turned in the direction it has such that for many Jews, um, whether they are religious or not, whether they are atheists or not, um, the symbol and mark of the historical ethical community has become circumcision. Uh, and not these other practices. That's not to say there isn't a revival of some of these other practices too among a younger generation of American Jews. I think there is such a revival. But um, it would appear that um, the notion of membership in that historical community related to um, what indeed is a um, commandment um, uh, in the Hebrew Bible to circumcise as a way of showing membership has become exactly that, a symbol of identification, attachment, concern for participation in all of the complicated struggles and issues that Jewish intellectual life and historical experience has brought to us. Right. I don't, I, I, you know, I can't, I can't say why that is the case. Um, historically, why it went one direction or another. But um, it is my observation that very large numbers of Jews around the world, whether religious or secular, and certainly the overwhelming number of American Jews circumcised their sons. I don't know the exact number. I'd be surprised if it was less than 90% of Jews. Sure. I have a bet with a very famous psychologist about what that number will be in 25 years and you know the bets probably for a quarter or a dollar but we keep in touch about it and my bet is that 25 years the, the psychologist I'm talking about um, 
who I will remain unnamed only because I don't have his permission to necessarily discuss this matter, um, believes, argues something like this. He, he's an enlightenment figure who believes the world is becoming more and more enlightened and scientific and that Jews are among the most enlightened and educated of peoples in the world. And he can't imagine that Jews will continue to do this practice, which he views as a kind of pre-modern, um, atavistic uh, practice. So his prediction is it's going to go away, and my prediction is no way. And I win the bet if 25 years from now, a majority of Jews in America continue to circumcise. Um, and I feel fairly confident I'm going to win that bet. But we'll, we'll see. We'll see. That's, that's very interesting. Um, and I, we spoke in a little bit about this before, but I um, think that the fact that there are lower rates of circumcision among Jews who belong to cultures in which it's not a normative practice demonstrates that... Um, I don't know if most Jews won't be circumcising in, in 25 years hence, but I'm pretty confident that less, uh, lower percentage will be circumcising than circumcised today. But I, I want to come back well, to Well, let me, the, before, before sure. we leave this topic, again, I'd like to, I will have to get the numbers, but I'm, imp as I understand it, at least in some parts of the former Soviet Union, Moscow area, I think probably as much as anywhere else, an authoritarian government so terrorized the Jewish populations that many Russian Jews were not circumcised. Uh, I think there's a message in that. And indeed, you know, I would suggest that people who view themselves as liberals and somehow have this view that the state should intervene into family lives to protect children might want to think about the way in which authoritarian governments like in the Soviet Union so terrorized Jewish families that they gave up circumcision. But as I understand it, many of those Russian Jews, when they arrived in Israel or the United States, went and got circumcised as adults to get their identities back. And that to me tells me something about the power of this particular symbolic connection through this marking of the body, um, which I will argue is not um, either substantially enough medically beneficial to justify it and on medical grounds, nor would I argue is so risky and dangerous that one should stop doing it on medical grounds. In any case, it's, a, it's now a, it seems to me, something that's very central to Jewish life all over the world. We do need more, more data on this. Uh, we were talking about what's going on in France. Um, the cases that I know where Jewish circumcision has gone away seem to me to be associated with things you don't want to have it associated with, like the success of Hitler in getting rid of Judaism, of Jews on the con in continental Europe, and the terror that was there after World War II in the minds of some Jewish parents who stopped circumcising their children in places like Belgium or other continental sites because they were worried that they would be marked and identified and the Holocaust would happen again. Right. Under those conditions, yes, it goes away. But that's precisely, for me, reason to worry about interventions of that type. And I mean, certainly it's my preference that people choose to stop doing this as opposed to be compelled by any kind of state uh, or legislation that would literally prevent... That is absolutely my preference. Um, I want to make that 100% clear. But I want to come back to a point you made earlier, which had to do with the identification and being a part of this group. And I think a lot of people don't know this, um, but I've been telling people this because it's true, that hospital circumcisions from a ritual Jewish perspective, from a religious Jewish, Jewish, Jewish perspective, do not make a person Jewish. Ritual circumcisions, according to the Jewish tradition, do not make a person Jewish. It's a very strange religious concept, this notion of the covenant. Um, and um, uh, being Jewish is determined, according to Jewish tradition, by one of two things. If you're born to a Jewish mother or if you convert into the faith. Those are the only two ways to be Jewish. And circumcision really doesn't change that. Uh, a, an intact Jewish male is as Jewish as a circumcised Jewish male. So that's it's an interesting just point that a lot of people don't know. Well, there's also no reason to think that there's something like um, an official Jewish law that 
that is um, the kind of thing that's going to be consulted by people who view themselves as ethnically Jewish. I mean, I'm talking about a cultural ethnic identification. It's Judaism as a civilization, not Judaism as halakha law or any particular school of interpretation uh, 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 of the Hebrew Bible. I'm talking about what's emerged in over some period of time as the, the cultural mark of identification with an ancestral tradition. And uh, I, I don't think that uh, consultation with either text or uh, rabbinical officials is um, the procedure that is uh, on anyone's mind in the secular Jewish world when they, in overwhelming numbers, go ahead and circumcise their sons. But I would go further. I would say that you are exceptional in having thought about circumcision in this way among American Jews. I don't think, and again, very difficult to get data on this point, I don't think that a vast majority of American Jews circumcise because they're Jewish. I think they circumcise because that's what people do in American hospitals. Well, I think there's more to it than that. I, I, you know, I've taken an interest in circumcision on a worldwide scale and both male and female cases of it. I earlier wryly said that um, male and female genital beautification practices um, are um, widely endorsed and highly valued in many ethnic groups. And when you, and I use the word beautification there, Riley, because we're talking about the practice that can't be named, to borrow a Harry Potterism. Um, because now when you have discussions about either male or female practices, that, the practice that can't be named, it starts with having to describe or label or name it. And one set of people says male genital mutilation, and another says male circumcision. Uh, in the female case, there are numerous ways in which it's described, all the way from female genital mutilation to female genital cutting. You've made a movie called The Cut. From my point of view, even that word is an aggressive image cutting, I don't think, has the same kind of resonance as other ways of naming something. In the female case, um, and I, I actually think most Jews would react negatively, uh, there might even be an uprising if all of a sudden the New York Times started referring to Jewish circumcision as male genital cutting, the way they refer to the female case now, which somehow they think is less severe than calling it female genital mutilation. In the anthropological literature, when you look at the writings of anthropologists, mostly women, who actually work in communities where this happens and, and are close to the practice, you will not see them using the phrase female genital mutilation. They're going to either, they, they, some of them, for some of them, FGM is an abbreviation for female genital modification. For some, it's female genital surgery. Some might use female genital cutting but no, almost none will use female genital mutilation. The activist organizations will call it female genital mutilation, which I think is roughly equivalent to starting a conversation about abortion by asking someone how they feel about the murder of innocent life. Okay, well, so it's, it's conclusion tending. Well, in any just case, a, qu a quick correction. Right, right, right. My film is called Cut. There's okay. no definite article in there. Just <laughs> okay. a pet peeve. Sorry, Cut. Let's, I wanna, <laughs> let's advertise it. It's Cut. Cut's the movie. Nevertheless, um, Cut is different than But I think I find the word right. Cut to be um, descriptive, certainly more than mutilation. Modification might be the most neutral term I'm aware of, genital. I'm simply trying to alert everyone to the fact that words carry values Absolutely. and valences and communicate attitudes. And if you want to have an open, critical discussion, one that employs reason and evidence, probably one wants to avoid starting the conversation with words like mutilation. How do you feel about mutilation? I mean, you know. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, in any case, I've been doing comparative research on both types of, let's call it, modifications in the places where it's done in Africa it's generally called something like the beautification or the purification or the cleansing or something of the sort well, those terms also or, right? sort of bias the discussion yeah because bit. these are places that approve of it right. so if you're going to you know in a sensitive way try to understand the native point of view you might want to think about the words they use and why they see it that way and the point I'm getting at 
is that there are many reasons people have for doing things, and some of them are aesthetic. Um, you know, there is a ideal for the genitals that exists in many East and West African groups in which they believe what you would call the genitals as naturally given either by Darwin or God or by, you know, by evolution or God uh, or creation is um, they think they are animalistic looking, ugly, odious to sight and touch, excessively fleshy, and that's true of both male and female genitals. And they want to make them look smoother and cleaner. Hair removal sometimes takes place. Um, there is a very positive aesthetic associated with becoming more beautiful and dignified and civilized and high rather than low and animalistic and crude and ugly looking. So you have to enter into cultural aesthetics if you're gonna understand at least some of the reasons for doing it. And another set of reasons turn on issues of gender identity and the kinds of analyses of anatomy that people have in different groups. There are ethno-anatomies. So, for example, in at least many of the African cases of both male and female um, modifications of the genitals, surgical modifications, they are trying, they start with the view that males and females come into the world androgynous with both male and female elements. They closely analyze the anatomy of the body. They see the foreskin in the penis and it reminds them of the prepuce of the vagina. It looks to them like this female element in the male. And to become fully masculinized, you get rid of the female element. So culture is helping you develop a male gender identity. A parallel thing is to analyze the genitals of women and the clitoris, not unreasonably, they view as a vestigial male organ, a protrusion which looks like a little penis to them. And to help feminize women, they remove that and they smooth out the genitals they believe to make it look more beautiful. And they help males and females become males and females. It's important to recognize, by the way, for those who have read too much of the popular press on this topic, that there are no societies in which there are um, uh, surgical modifications of the genitals for females, but not for males. There are plenty of places in which there's male circumcision, but not female modifications. Um, there are plenty of places where neither males nor females have this done to them. There are plenty of places in which both are done, but you do not, this is not a case of picking on women. It's a case of doing something with gender equity in mind, namely males and females have their bodies modified so as to assume appropriate, from the local point of view, gender identities and roles, and for both of them to beautify their bodies. And the procedures are often done at similar ages um, there, it's not just done to women. What do you make of the practice in the United States? I'm sure you're familiar with the history of how it got started here and some of the um, medical justifications that have been given over time to the practice. I, if you could comment on what you think about the practice in the United States as a cultural practice, if you will, and then uh, touch on the medical justifications and... Um, you know, I've always felt that this is, um, you know, if you look at the history in the United States and you see how every generation has a sort of different medical rationale, it's very clear to me that what you have is a deeply embedded cultural practice that in our society needs to be justified medically in order to continue. So can you address these issues and, and then also touch on, you know, do you think there are legitimate non-medical reasons in the United States for performing this practice? Um. I'm hardly an expert on this topic, but uh, as I understand it, um, the United States is off the scale in the English-speaking countries of the world with regard to male circumcision. We have, um, people can argue about the rates. I, I, my best estimate of the current um, rate in the United States is probably somewhere between 60 and 62% of males um, are circumcised. Um, I believe that figure was higher, let's say in this, probably in the mid to late 1960s, maybe 80 to 85% of the population 
um, was was circumcised, but that even that figure of 60 to 62 percent is much higher than you will find in other English-speaking countries. They don't circumcise in majorities in England, in New Zealand, in Australia, in Canada. In Canada, the rates have come very far down. Um, so it strikes me just on the face of it that if there's medical evidence out there, the medical establishments in a lot of, of places in the world, like England, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, have not concluded that uh, there's a strong medical justification for uh, male circumcision, and I don't believe there is a strong justification for it. I myself uh, am somewhat dubious of the more recent claims about HIV protection, um, uh, and it strikes me that, you know, probably given the choice between a condom and um, circumcision, you would attain greater safety with the condom than with circumcision. Uh, and you discussed yesterday, you know, so I think some good reasons for being dubious of the evidence. But even if the evidence is is um, convincing and there's some kind of modest protection that comes, um, I hardly see that as a strong reason for neonatal circumcision. I mean, it would suggest at best that you provide a young person just before they become sexually active, if they decide to get become sexually active, uh, of the risks and the op and whether and, and and whatever kind of protections available, and leave it up to them to decide. So I don't I don't see strong medical justification for uh, neonatal circumcision. Um, I actually think that the recommendation of the American Academy of Pediatrics, if that's what they I think that's what they call mm -hmm. themselves the report that came out in the late 1990s in which they basically reviewed the evidence, said they didn't think it was sufficiently compelling to recommend a general surgery for neonates, but then went on to say, but you know, there are non-medical reasons for doing alterations of the body and that's up to people to decide. That basically is my view. I think that there are non-medical reasons for doing what is called cosmetic surgery. Um, that's what cosmetic surgery is, non-medical surgery. And in the United States, aesthetic or cosmetic surgeries are all over the place, widely accepted. There are probably hundreds, if not thousands, of procedures that go on all the time. Some of them even involve genital modifications. Uh, labioplasty, for example, is growing, is probably the most popular, or the, the most rapidly growing form of cosmetic surgery for women in the United States right now. And you know, there's, there is evidence, I think, that some surprise, maybe, is it surprising? There's a substantial percent of women in places like, there's a study out of England showing that substantial percent, percentage of women believe that their genitals are unattractive, okay? Uh, or at least sometimes or often think of their genitals as unattractive. Um, and, you know, let's say that's just 30 or 40% of the population. Nevertheless, a substantial number feel that way, and some of them are motivated to beautify themselves and go ahead and do it through cosmetic surgeries. Of, so, of course, there's so, a big difference here well, between a person who finds their own body unattractive and wants to modify it cosmetically and modifying the body of an infant. So you're bringing to mind an analogy here. If a parent felt that it would, that, you know, it would be in their child's best interest to give them a nose job when they were infants or you know, make some sort of other radical modification uh, of their body. Um, so I would that be okay? And, and in answering that, if you could also address, because my specific question is not whether there are some practices that, that are done for non-medical reasons that are permissible, but where do you draw the line? That's my question. Well, with regard to your first question, the answer is that um, uh, while... Um, I actually have some degree of admiration for those cultural traditions in which these body modification practices take place um, in, let's say, early adolescence uh, or even just pre-adolescence because I think um, they're trying for a compromise between carrying on their cultural tradition and having a degree of knowledgeable understanding of why this is being done and even a form of commitment by the child to doing it, which I think is 
ha has all sorts of benefits. And in a moment, I'll tell you about an experience I had with an East African guy explaining to me his male circumcision. Um, I don't believe that there's a general principle which says parents thinking about the best interest of their child should never engage in cosmetic surgeries of children. So two examples which come to mind immediately are parents of Down syndrome children who, because they love and want to protect their child, especially from stigmatization and being seen as abnormal or as defective in some way, um, go ahead within a framework that allows this in the United States to have surgeries done on the facial structures of three and four year old Down syndrome children um, so that they look more normal. Uh, this is not something in which they are, get the consent of the child. Indeed, it's not clear that a Down syndrome child would have the capacity to give consent then or even somewhat later. Um, but at least it seems to me there is an argument. You know, we can argue this both ways, I suppose, but I can certainly, I'm certainly open to seeing the argument that these parents are acting in the best interest of their child and that's legitimate for them to try and normalize the appearance of their child. Um, there are also operations when ch young children have ears that are abnormal in one way or another to engage in surgeries on young children to normalize the structure of their ears. Uh, in all these cases, there, you know, people sometimes invoke the right to bodily integrity. Well, that's a vague abstraction, bodily integrity. And if bodily integrity means having a normal body as understood and perceived by members of your most relevant reference group, that's what these parents are trying to do. They're trying to ensure the bodily integrity of their children by normalizing their appearance through surgery, but which is typically what's happening in groups that are pro-circumcision for either males or females. Uh, but you do draw, you must draw the line somewhere. And I, I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. And we talked about before um, parents, uh, deaf parents wanting their children to be deaf. And you expressed, you said, uh, you know, I, I appreciate that, you know, you, you went here and you said that, um, you know, I haven't thought about it deeply enough, but my, um, my intuition is that I'd be opposed to that. So my question again is, where do you draw the line, and does it have to do with um, how much objective damage is being done to the I'm individual? not going to try and draw the line. I think it's a mistake to try and draw abstract lines. I think what you should do is be a situational ethicist, and when a case comes along, ask, what is the good? What is the good? Show me the good, okay? And um, what I tried to do in the examples I just gave you is show you the good. If, you, if there's no good, that can or value end moral end that's being promoted by the action then i would criticize it but it's a case-based analysis of the end um, and when it comes to a question of do i can i offer a universal definition of what a normal genital should look like i think the answer is i don't see how to give that fa that uh, to, to draw to set out that criterion I can perfectly well understand how African peoples look at genitals in their natural state and don't find them attractive. Indeed, I suspect that if you actually did a careful analysis of attitudes in the United States and Europe to the appearance of genitals, you would find many people who don't think they're beautiful and might even think they're animalistic looking and somewhat ugly even. So if someone says, you know, we have an ideal which is to make people look less animalistic, more dignified, to get rid of these ugly protrusions in female that, re that look male-like, to get rid of fleshy encumbrances at the tip of the penis so that men look better, to remove hair. To me, that's an understandable aesthetic ideal, and it's not something, unless it's producing obvious universal harms, that would lead me to condemn it. Okay, and and now, this brings us to the question of whether or not um, male circumcision can be accurately characterized as a form of harm. And I argue, of course, in my film and um, in talking to people about this, that there are some uh, definite harms that occur to the penis as a result of this practice. And you have said that you, you don't feel that the word harm is an accurate description of what's going on. Now, I'll reiterate my case for the, for the sake of this discussion. 
I feel that circumcision immobilizes the penis, which in its natural state is mobile, which has actual uh, impact on... Uh, what is the mobile penis? That's a very interesting expression, but... It's, uh, well, what, it's, what do you mean a mobile penis? Well, the penis um, during intercourse in, in, in intact males mm -hmm. um, moves in and out of itself as the male thrusts in and out of either the vagina or the anus or where, wherever it is. Um, so this is a description of having the, what it's like to have a foreskin. Correct. Okay. Uh, force, the foreskin moves, oh, and this, okay. this is true of masturbation as well. Um, but one of the effects of this um, sort of movement in and out of itself is that um, it conserves lubrication, uh, which then allows um, sort of comfortable sex to last longer because, first of all, um, in intact males, the head of the penis is mucous membrane, so he's bringing a certain amount of lubrication to the game as well. And so you have a sort of almost closed system of lubrication um, in which the male is moving in and out of himself and bringing some lubrication to the party, as it were, um, so you have, um, so that in and of itself is an effect of circumcision, that when you remove the foreskin, that uh, mobile action of the penis, uh, which also, um, you know, it changes the, the dynamics, the thrusting is actually shallower in intact men, and that changes the effect of how it feels for the woman. Um, so that's one obvious effect, the circumcision immobilizes the penis, um, thereby permanently altering that uh, action. Uh, and the second, of course, are, is the highly innervated um, distal ridges of the foreskin, now called the ridge band uh, by some researchers. Um, and we now have very strong evidence that um, the uh, highest innervated part of the penis is the foreskin. That's the most sensitive, the most receptive uh, to sensation. Uh, and by removing that, you are, in effect, uh, diminishing the sensory capacity of the penis, which then, in turn, has a whole number of effects on the sexual experience of the man. The precise nature of that effect, difficult to describe. I mentioned that uh, Ken McGraw, or McGrath, I'm not sure how his, his name is pronounced, this New Zealand pathologist, has started to actually trace some of the circuits that... Um, that come from the foreskin and that are absent in circumcised men and how that actually affects uh, sexual experience. Uh, but our tools are admittedly very poor for defining this in any kind of fine-grained way. So to me, that is uh, clear evidence that this is a harmful practice, that you are causing harm to the penis and to the, and at the very least, permanently altering male sexual experience. So let me ask you this. Since I, do you think that if you were to discourse this way to a, um, let's say, 13 to 20 year old South Korean, Filipino, uh, Kikuyu in East Africa, Kono in Sierra Leone, and explain what you explained to them mm -hmm. in a situation in which there is free choice, by your notion of free choice, to the extent that free choice exists? Right. Um, since I believe you don't believe that people should be stopped from doing this if they want to. Of as course adults. not. Okay. Of course. Do you actually believe that the description you just gave would convince, or a Jewish male, let's say, uh, you know, the Jews coming out of the Soviet Union, who I described, you know, before they had their circumcision, we brought you in to give the description you just gave. You think you would change the minds of very many people about whether or not to go ahead with the circumcision? I think the answer is not a chance, and because there are so many issues, and there, there, are, there are even individual differences in whether people think being highly wired for sexual pleasure is a good idea. Eros and sexuality and sexual promiscuity have been seen in very complicated ways in all of human history. Some people believe that being overstimulated or sexually wired or having this great capacity for pleasure is a problematic, not a valuable end. And um, given the benefits that come from feeling like your body looks normal, being a member of a group which has both an aesthetic, a set of ideas about gender identity, in the case of Jews, uh, a symbolic connection to the ethical community that goes back into deep history, it seems to me that these are minor considerations, especially in the face of a fair amount of evidence, I think, 
that um, people continue to have orgasms, they masturbate with satisfaction, they um, uh, have coitus at levels that are no different than people who are uncircumcised in terms of frequency of coitus. You have self-reports from South Korea in which men who got circumcised, large numbers of men, the whole country of South Korea went from being uncircumcised to circumcised in a very short amount of time after World War II and the Korean War. Um, you have vast numbers of men who had sexual experiences before they were circumcised and when interviewed after they were circumcised report that it did not change their sexual experiences and um, did not uh, reduce their pleasure. So uh, I've seen recent evidence on, on thousands of, subject of, of women in, um, uh, in Central African Republic, some of whom were, uh, had, had uh, female genital modification, some of whom didn't. The, there was evidence on frequency of coitus and there was no difference between the two populations in frequency of coitus. So it's just hard for me to see that something like an impressive case about risks and damage has been presented that would convince most people making a fully adult rational choice to stop doing it. What I do find is that people who already have a prior opposition to um, uh, what they would call mutilation, go around and look for whatever evidence they can and often cherry pick that evidence or find something that supports their position and then they like to dramatize it and make it highly emotional in presentation. But I think that a dispassionate review of all the literature out there would show that advocates of circumcision who try to argue for it on health grounds and opponents of circumcision who try to present horror stories about risks are both inaccurate in their representations and are engaged in what I would call departures from impartial spectator critical reason. How would you respond? You saw the testimony in my film last night by the man who got circumcised as an adult. I'll give you a little more background information about him. He was mm -hmm. a gay man who was in a long-term relationship and uh, he broke up with his partner and decided he wanted to, quote, play the field and thought that it would be healthier to be circumcised. That was his entire motivation for getting circumcised. You heard that he regretted it. You heard that he described in great detail that there was a great detriment. In your uh, view of this, do you think he's lying to me? No, I think he's telling the truth, and I think botched operations occur in all sorts of areas. It I wasn't botched. It was a perfectly normal circumcision. I, I, well, I, I mean, I know people who've gone in for all sorts of kinds of cosmetic surgeries, and you can find things that happen where you could get testimonials from, pe from people in which it was a horror experience, but that doesn't lead me. You know, when, when, when women had abortions illegally, uh, sometimes horrible things happen to women, and the reaction wasn't, let's stop and criminalize abortion. It was, let's make it as safe as possible. But there was nothing wrong with his circumcision. In fact, they left some of the foreskin behind. So I, right. I, I kind of... There are risks. I mean, the point is we're not going to create a risk-free society. And to do so would probably require... I mean, yeah, I can imagine a risk-free society. You know how many children are injured on ski slopes in the United States every year? I'll bet you the damage done on ski scopes to children in the United States is greater than the damage done to neonates in circumcision at the not same a, rate. That's not an argument and, for circumcision. That's no, an argument against ski slopes. Well, just think about that. I mean, that's fine. do you, you want to make an argument against against We can talk about taking that. We're your talking, children we can, on ski slopes? We can talk about it. We're talking How about, about circumcision right now. You know, no, you know no, how many no, kids die in automobile but accidents? That's, that's not a very strong My point argument. is that pointing to something which failed or a damage that was done in a frequently done procedure is not an argument for ending the procedure. Okay, so in your mind, that individual is an outlier? Oh, I think he's an outlier for sure. Okay, I mean, that, so I, I think, it, I mean, I, if, if, you, if, you, if you look at, you know, the evidence from South Korea, the overwhelming number of males who had circumcisions as adults did not have a diminishment in their sexual. Now, it's true that very few had an enhancement. I don't think hardly any did. And if something happened that was untoward, it was towards diminishment. It also was not clear from that evidence that all of the males who said they had so much of a diminishment felt that their sexual lives were less satisfying because it's a very complicated thing, sexual life. And I've seen people who actually are somewhat 
happy that there was a slight diminishment in the level of their libido. Yeah. No, th th these are very complex subjects, but it's also very difficult to rely on self-reporting testimony in general. And you're constantly quoting this one study. You know, I'm sure that there are conflicting reports. Um, you can just do a quick Wikipedia search on the sexual effects of circumcision and come up with a whole list of reports, many of them conflicting, which is to be expected because you're talking about a very complex subject and you're relying on, for the most part, self-reporting data. And people have all sorts of reasons for either admitting or not admitting certain things that they feel. And I, I find that discussion to be not very fruitful, but um, that's why I try to you know, relegate would you, would myself. You, would you draw strong conclusions from conflicting reports? I don't draw strong conclusions from that. My conclusions, of course, are drawn from the histology and an appreciation for the relationship between the nervous system and the content of human experience, which I think is, is profound and interesting. It's been a, an ongoing fascination of mine. And this, this applies to many senses. You know, the, the effect of uh, the sense of smell and olfact olfactory neurons on the enjoyment of food. And, I mean, there are many other areas in which we can talk about this. But let's, let's move on let, to... Let me just observe that... Uh, my observation is that the nervous systems of people who have been circumcised have not been damaged and altered in ways that have kept them from leading satisfying and productive lives. I do not think that the Jews of the world have been less accomplished um, have, um, because they were circumcised, nor do I think that they won Nobel Prizes because they were circumcised. But I'd certainly... The claim that we're dealing with, if you're circumcised, somehow you have a damaged nervous system which somehow has a major impact on the quality of your life, that strikes me as hyperbolic as a formulation. All right. I mean, I, I don't think that that's a particularly good um, way of judging the issue, whether or not, because I'm, I'm certainly not suggesting that this um, destroys people's lives, although in certain outline cases it does. For the most part, I'm not, that's not my argument at all. Okay. Um, but let's let's move on. Um, I had a. But it is your view that to circumcise um, a an infant is unethical. Yes, that is All definitely right. my view. Okay. Um, I I want to if you can talk to me a little bit about the um, toward the end of your essay, you you come to this uh, brilliant conclusion about. Um, the ways in which people have to approach reality. Can you talk a little bit about the three possibilities that you outline there? Um, I guess I should say that in addition to being um, a robust cultural pluralist, I would also describe myself, have described myself as a Confucianist, which is not to be confused with being a Confucianist. This is a Confucianist. And Confucianism is a kind of philosophy of both life and scholarship, um, which is built around a small set of principles, but I suppose its most central principle is that the knowable world is incomplete if seen from any one point of view, incoherent if seen from all points of view at once, and empty if seen from the so-called nowhere in particular perspective, this kind of dehumanizing distance. So the choice in life and in scholarship is between incompleteness, incoherence, and emptiness. And given that choice, I can never choose incoherence. Um, emptiness is too much of a dehumanizing distance for me. So incompleteness is what I opt for, which means staying on the move between different points of view and trying to see what I can learn by stepping into the native point of view of some other and then moving on from there. And of course, recognizing that any point of view is incomplete. Uh, the metaphor I would give, a kind of, I suppose, Wittgensteinian metaphor, is sitting on a branch and then sawing off the branch that you're sitting on. But instead of just being a radical deconstructionist and spending your time just sawing off branches, the point is to look while you're on that branch and see what you can see and learn from that perspective. And then you saw it off and you go to another branch and you have a look there. and I have confidence that this will be eternal free fall, that you will never quite hit the ground. You'll just be going from perspective to perspective and trying to benefit from the expertise and knowledge that others have. So um, my pluralism is built around the notion that it's all too easy to stand outside someone else's world 
and react to what you see as though it's happening in your world. You need to step into their world, see it from their perspective. I believe that we all have the capacity to do that. And how we have the capacity to do that is both mysterious and challenging because if someone is really different, how could you ever understand that difference? So we must have some common bridges that make it possible for us to sympathetically understand, step into other people's worlds with the effect being that we do see things um, in a broad, in, in, a, in a different way, in a less parochial way. Or it's a series of parochialisms that we seek and we try to see what each parochial perspective will, will grant us. Um, and I, I am particularly sensitive to the hazards of ethnocentrism, to basically having your own gut or emotional reaction to something, which essentially is subject relative, but somehow assuming that your reaction must be uh, put you in touch with the universalizable moral truth uh, without recognizing the local or parochial nature of why you're reacting the way you are. Um, which is why in the face of conflicting evidence and a lot of other evidence, I think humility uh, and a recognition of the fallibility of human judgment uh, and a willingness to live and let live is a very important way to approach cultural and religious differences. Are there any cultural practices that you consider harmful? And the second part to that question is, is it ever appropriate in your opinion for people within a culture to criticize cultural practices? Oh, I think that criticism is something that should go on both inside and outside of any particular society or culture. I think that members of a culture should be prepared to uh, explain themselves and justify themselves to anyone who's willing to listen. The other side of that is, however, that someone has to be willing to listen, okay? And not simply rush to judgment based on emotional reactions and without deeply informing themselves about the little known other. Um, and do I think that I, I would distinguish between painful practices and harmful practices. And I, I think, I don't know if I can't speak for you, but I know that I grew up in a subculture in which people were increasingly squeamish about doing anything that would look like an ordeal for a child. There are many societies in the world in which young people are put through ordeals. Uh, and those ordeals, however, and those ordeals are often painful. Um, but those ordeals and the pain is meant to promote perhaps courage, perhaps preparation for more intense ordeals that are anticipated to come across in life. They're not there to, as, to torture the child. They're not there to um, mutilate and deform and create disabilities. Quite the contrary, they're there to promote an orientation to the world. Um, we, of course, have many th play uh, situations where we inflict on our, even on ourselves, pain. I mean, just look at the Iron Man contest or someone running a marathon. The pain is the point, um, which brings me to, an, you know, I'll relate to you a story. I was in, in a hotel in, in Cambridge years ago, coming down an elevator, and one other person was in the elevator with me, and I recognized him to be a Kenyan guy who turned out to come from a particular ethnic group in Kenya that I knew something about. When I got to the lobby, I was meeting someone who had a car and it turned out this guy was going nearby and he asked for a lift and we gave him a lift. So I had about 15 minutes to talk to him. So of course, being an anthropologist, I interviewed him about his circumcision. What else? Uh, I mean, I knew he would have no problem talking about it. So I said, well, tell me about your circumcision. And he said to me, well, you know, I was 13 years old. I was physically mature and it was the season for circumcision and all of my older cousins who were like 16 and 17 were going to be circumcised, but they weren't going to let me do it. They thought I was too young. And I, so I threw a fit and a tantrum and I demanded they let me do this. And they relented and they let me do it. So I said the naive question, well, wasn't it painful? And he said to me, painful? It was the most painful thing I've ever experienced in my life. It, it took us a month to recover. But during that month, there I was with these other people. They taught us how to drink beer, how to own property, how to treat women, how to have sex. And those people I was with during that month, some of whom are illiterate and live in Kenya. This guy was an academic teaching in the United States. 
He said, I feel closer to them than any people in the world. And he said, you know what? When my child was born here in the United States in the hospital, they asked me if I wanted to circumcise him. And I said, what? Why would you circumcise an infant? I mean, he won't understand the experience. He won't understand the reason for the pain. He won't have the pain be embedded in all these significant practices. It won't be a bonding experience with his peers. It seemed pointless to him from that point of view. But the point is the ordeal and the pain was part of becoming an adult in his ethnic group and learning a great deal of knowledge. So I don't view that as a harm. I just view it as an ordeal. Now, with regard to harms, you know, this is an area in which, of course, you know, yesterday at the film, your father pointed out the number of head injuries that he as a neurologist has to deal with, some of them, I presume, serious, which come from the institutionalization of contact sports in American schools. People go into football and they end up with injuries all the time. This is predictable. We know there are going to be injuries. They happen at a certain rate. We can call that harm because it is harm to whoever's doing it, but we are not led to say we must stop all contact football in the United States because it's harmful. I mean, we're prepared in a society to accept a certain amount of risk and to leave it up to parents and individuals themselves to decide what's a, what's a, a, a tolerable amount of risk. And then there are certain limits where something becomes so abusive that we feel that it must be regulated. And I do think there are such cases, of course. Final I don't think circumcision's in that category, however. Is that dependent on the empirical evidence about circumcision? So is it possible that at some point in time, a sufficient amount of data will have accumulated for you to say, you know what, I was wrong about this. It seems that this is harmful. I'm just asking if that's possible. And the second part to that question is, um, do you think that people like myself, who are speaking to members of the Jewish community that I'm a part of, members of the American community whom, that I'm a part of, um, are uh, that it's okay for us to, to question this practice, to, to start high-level discussions about it um, because of our concerns. I th I'm for critical reason and debate on all sorts of topics, so I have no problem with there being discussions. I'd like there to be discussions of both male and female genital modifications done in a dispassionate way with a full respect for reason and evidence. Um, and of course, there's going to have to be a moral discourse that has to go on, which I hope will lead to an examination of what is the moral domain, what goods are out there. Um, it, it, I think it will lead to a critical discussion of the limits of certain forms of uh, liberal autonomy emphasis, but that's part of the discussion. Um, and um, my observation is that the media um, has played an unhelpful role, on both for them in the male and the female case. I mean, I think that for the most part, they haven't taken um, the male intactivist movement as seriously as they have taken the anti-female genital mutilation, quote unquote, movement. Um, and I don't think we, the American public has been exposed to um, um, uh, what I would call a serious, impartial spectator, critical discussion of the evidence that's out there. So yes, I would welcome that. Um, what was the first part of your is question? There any kind, is there any amount of evidence that would lead you to, to say, you know what, this is actually very harmful and we should... We should well, I mean, be... hypothetically, I can imagine, you know, sure, if you showed me that circumcising males reduce their IQ by 30 points, um, you know, or if you showed me that, you know, there was some other effect of male circumcision which made it difficult for someone to have a, uh, a life um, that uh, enabled them to have social re meaningful social relationships, to be reproductively successful if they wanted to, to pursue um, avocations and vocations productively. Um, yeah, that would have an impact. Do I think that there's much likelihood of that happening given the observations that we currently have and a long history of 
probably 25 to 30 percent of the pop males of the world being circumcised. Uh, I think it's highly unlikely. Yes. Okay. Professor Schweder, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. And thank you for indulging um, me and my disagreement with you. I feel very strongly that I learn the most from people who I disagree with, and you definitely helped me in understanding this subject. So thank you for your time. Good luck with your work. <laughs> That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com.